Good afternoon. My name is John Herbst, and I am the director of the Dinu Butrutu Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. We've got a wonderful program for you this afternoon. This is the first in a series of events that represents a partnership between Fred Stard's uh, Central Asia and Caucasus Initiative and the Dinu Patricia Eurasia Center. Uh, we have a wonderful program for you today. You already have your agenda in front of you, so I will not read, tell you who your speakers will be and give you their bios. You've got it there. I just wanted to say that you can follow us on hashtag AC Eurasia, and I will now turn the mic over to Fred. Thank you. Good afternoon. This is, we're here to discuss something truly interesting, and that is, is something stirring in Central Asia? Now, now I didn't say is something happening. There, there is a lot happening, and we're going to talk about happenings in, in country by country and in the region as a whole. There is a lot taking place. Uh, IMF tells us that uh, fiscal accommodation and exchange rate adjustments have helped the region mitigate the immediate impact from large and persistent external shocks, particularly the slump in commodity prices. Growth is starting to recover. That's a sanguine view, but something's happening, obviously, in the economy. You're going to hear in some detail about uh, uh, Uzbekistan and, and what's happened there recently since the death of President Karimov. We'll also be hearing about, about uh, developments in Kazakhstan, where in January there uh, the, the president put forward uh, a very interesting set of propositions and re further reforms that are uh, about to take place. Uh, the other countries we'll be hearing about also. The question is not whether things are happening in Central Asia. It is rather, is something stirring? In other words, does, do these changes, these developments have a direction? And uh, if so, what, are, what is driving that? And what is that direction and where will it lead? These are, the, this is a much more fundamental question. There is no simple answer to it, obviously. We don't pretend to offer one either individually or collectively. However, um, note further, it is a question. I, I want to stress, it is a question that we want to know, is this happening on a country-by-country pace, country or is it occurring, if it is occurring, on a regional basis? Now, these are some of the issues we want to address. They're open questions. We have a wonderful panel. If they, you all come up, uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, Ambassador Herbst, who uh, truly in this room needs no introduction. <laughs> You're on. Okay. Um, I will lead off by talking about Uzbekistan, where I think we've seen the most interesting developments over the past six or seven months. We all know that the longtime president of the country passed away um, late summer, and his replacement was named um, almost immediately. 
uh, Prime Minister Mirza Zioyev. While we didn't know who was going to become his successor, it was clear, at least to some of us, that there was going to be a peaceful transition because Uzbekistan has a stable and cohesive elite that has been used to making decisions which more or less satisfy the different centers of power in the country. So what type of uh, country did Mirza Zioyev inherit? A country which, of course, he played a role in developing as prime minister for well over a decade. I do. It's not, you're not hearing me? Hmm. Hello. Well, it's just this box maybe. Well, I can speak. There it is. Uh, there, now it's there. I was about to speak up, you know, hear my voice. Anyway. Not went away. Maybe you need to keep the thing out. I will hold it next to my, there. That, no? No, it's not. Bring it out. I think it's the, the transmitter, the little box. <laughs> Welcome to technology. How's that? Great, thank you. Okay. He inherited a stable country with significant resources, the only country in the region which borders on all the other stands of Soviet Central Asia, or post-Soviet Central Asia, a weak, partly autarkic economy, which had a too strong state role, rampant corruption, an authoritarian regime in which elite, non-transparent politics dominate, a controlled Soviet-style media with an overwhelming majority of the population having little voice, a largely secular population with small, hardened group of Islamic extremists numbering in the thousands, and violent jihadis numbering at least in the hundreds. The country has a, had a reputation and still enjoys a reputation for an independent but somewhat mercurial foreign policy, which perhaps reflected the preferences of President Karimov to keep Moscow at a distance, but also to avoid dangers, both real and imagined, which prompted him to jump back and forth between Moscow and Washington. President Karimov was a difficult neighbor, especially with Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, closing the border to trade, insisting that they not release water from their dams in the winter, threatening war of Tajikistan went ahead with the Rogan II Dam, the high dam. It's safe to say that in the past, Uzbekistan was in fact a serious factor in the absence of regional coordination and cooperation. So the passing of President Karimov, the arrival of Prime Minister Mirzioyev opened the door, perhaps, for significantly greater cooperation in the region. And we have seen promises of that almost immediately. For example, Foreign Minister Kamilov, a long-term foreign policy hand, was at the UN at the end of September, and he spoke about relations with Tajikistan without referencing water issues, without referencing Uzbekistan's previously strong opposition to the Rogan Dam. We saw a visit by the Deputy Prime Minister of Kyrgyzstan to Andijan with a very large delegation in October, where they talked about a host of regional issues. Um, Kamilov, in that period as well, took trips to both Bishkek and to Dushanbe to talk about easing relationships. We've seen the, the reinstitution of air links between Dushanbe and Tashkent after suspension for many years. We've seen a great growth in trade between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, 30% in the first quarter of this year. And we've seen the um, visits of the new Uzbek president, both to Ashgabat and to uh, Kazakhstan, to search for greater cooperation. It's safe to say 
that if Uzbekistan decides that its interests are served by regional, regional cooperation, we will see much greater economic integration across the region, and even the prospect of taking on the most difficult issue of all within the region, that is of water usage. Uzbekistan, like Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, are downstream states who want the water to be released in the summertime, spring and summertime, for irrigation purposes. Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, the poorest countries in the region, uh, would like to release that water in the winter to generate electricity. But if Uzbekistan is willing to look at compromise, I think the prospects for dealing with this very difficult issue goes up substantially. So I think it's safe to say that we will see some serious improvements in intra-regional cooperation. And let, let me make one other point. I don't want to be too hard on the, on the former president of the, the past <coughs> president of Uzbekistan. Karimov deserves a lot of credit for establishing a clearly strong and independent state. Obviously an authoritarian leader with problems in the human rights area, but for the country, he did some substantial good in setting off the country on a strong path of independent foreign policy, which has been, its, I'd say, the greatest strength of the country since independence. Now, on the domestic side, here too we've seen some, some favorable tea leaves, but I use that phrase almost carefully, meaning that these are not very strong indicators, but the indicators are positive. Uh, what are the indicators? One, we've seen the release of political prisoners, uh, several, not many, of the thousands, but interestingly, uh, one of the political prisoners released is a brother of, um, I'm forgetting his name, having a senior moment, I apologize for that, the head of the Irk Party. Uh, and this guy was in a jail for 15 plus years. Oh. Yes, thank you. Uh, two, we've seen the um, announcement of free economic zones, or free industrial zones, in several spots across the country. Three, we've seen the um, draft decree on making the SUM, the Uzbek currency, freely convertible. Now, of course, I was in Tashkent the last time they did this, in the summer of 02 and then 03, and they went ahead with the making it freely convertible, it instituted a host of trade regulations which essentially nullified it. And you can be sure vested interest in that cohesive Uzbek elite will probably not like this measure. And then finally, we have the announcement of visa liberalization, but there, too, there's already been some pushback, and there's talk about making this actable, actionable in 2021 as opposed to now. So this cohesive Uzbek elite, which I think explains the peaceful transition, also makes it clear that reform in the country is not just a matter of the president making a decision. He has to bring along key power centers within the elite. And with that, I'll turn this over to Dick. Ambassador Hoagland. Okay, thank you very much, Fred, and thank you, Atlantic Council. Uh, it is truly an honor to be asked to participate in something like this, um, and I thank you for that. In this presentation, at the beginning, Fred made a distinction between stirring and happening, and as I was preparing for this and thinking about it, especially this weekend after returning from a long trip, um, I thought Kazakhstan, well, it's been happening for quite a long time. Uh, but I think that there are probably four things that I could call your attention to briefly that it's worth paying attention to and watching because it's part of a continuum of evolution, but not really revolution. Um, 
I'd suggest there are probably four things we could pay attention to in the coming months, year or so. Uh, first, the recent proposed constitutional changes that theoretically devolve more authority from the presidency to the parliament, which some interpret as another step in the inevitable transition of power that will be faced sooner or, or later. Second, uh, there is a new renewed effort at privatization. Um, but this is, I would suggest, probably just a pragmatic response to the historically long and low hydrocarbon prices right now, which are causing economic problems. Third, I'd say for the longer term, we should pay continual attention to China. China's uh, Belt Road Initiative, as they've come to call it now, BRI, used to be One Belt, One Road. Uh, even before that, it was the New Silk Road. Um, but this is something, and I'll elaborate on this in a second, that probably deserves the most attention. And then finally, in the term uh, transient uh, developments, Kazakhstan hosting Expo 2017 this summer. And uh, not to be dismissed, Kazakhstan's non-permanent membership on the UN Security Council. So let's look at these very briefly, each one. Devolution of power. You know, while this is a welcome development, taken in context, it's just really part of the long process that has been occurring in fairly recent years to establish a more professional, if not wholly independent, parliament. I'd suggest we should view this development as part of Kazakhstan's and President Nazarbayev's institution building, which has been going on for a long time, even if in slow motion, so that there are elements of checks and balances in place when the inevitable transfer of power does actually occur. And I consider that positive. The new privatization, the second one. While some free market advocates in the West applaud this new round of uh, privatization as a welcome step toward a market economy, in fact, it's just a logical step in the process that Kazakhstan started two decades ago when it took the decision to reform its financial and banking sectors away from the old Soviet command economy. Um, this is a fundamental step that none of the other Central Asian states have yet to take in any measure, although, as John said, Uzbekistan is toying with it now. With the current global price of oil stuck around $50 a barrel now, and likely to stay stuck for the foreseeable future, Kazakhstan's economy needs a boost. Because of its early economic and banking reforms, it's positioned to take advantage of the global economy, at least to the degree that will not overly harm its oligarchs, power brokers, and other special interests. So I'd suggest this is a pragmatic and not an ideological development. Uh, China's Belt Road Initiative. Kazakhstan's role in this really does bear close watching. In the long run, this is a trend in Central Asia that might possibly be the most important. It's not now about infrastructure, highways and railroads, because it's increasingly becoming about China's investment in Kazakhstan's industrial production. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Some would say that Kazakhstan needs to be vigilant that it doesn't skew its multi-vector foreign policy by getting too close to China. But I would suggest from experience that Kazakhstan knows very well its own national interests and its own limits, and it will intelligently take every advantage it can without violating its longstanding international policy. And then finally, let's look at Expo 2017 and UN Security Council membership. Some observers like to arch their eye eyebrows and intone, Kazakhstan overpromises and underdelivers. Well, you know what? A lot of countries do that. Sometimes even the United States does that. But isn't it better to dream big and make some achievements than not to dream at all? I suppose we could say that Expo 2017 is a squandering of nat national resources in a period of budgetary belt tightening. But it is indeed one thing that will put Kazakhstan on the world stage, at least for a brief while this year. And don't forget that Kazakhstan's intention is that the Expo 2017 infrastructure that has been built will be repurposed into the Astana International Financial Center with a long-term goal of being the international financial midpoint between the Gulf states and Singapore the only institution of its kind in the former Soviet Union, in fact. As for the UN Security Council, Kazakhstan has pledged to be a positive player and an honest broker. It does not see its role there as a sort of national vanity project, I'd suggest. And I have no doubt that Kazakhstan's hardworking UN perm rep, Ambassador Khairat Umarov, <clears throat> will ensure that Kazakhstan is indeed seen as a valuable player on the Security Council. So, to conclude, let me say there are happenings in Kazakhstan and Central Asia. Maybe not yet a real stirring. I'm going to steal someone else's thunder here and say, what would be the real stirring? If the five countries on their own would begin to get together to form a regional association. Now, you might remember that former Secretary of State um, uh, Kerry, late in Obama's second term, did pull together what was called the C5, Central Asia 5, plus one, the United States. Uh, and there were surprisingly congenial meetings at the uh, UN Security Council in the fall last year, and then subsequently in Samarkand. But nothing much ever came of it. The fact that they attended and were collegial was positive. So let's hope that on their own, they can begin to see the value in this and move forward and form a true regional association. So with that, I'll stop and give it to the Thank others. you. Uh, just note what you've read in the biographical introduction that Dick Hoagland served as ambassador in two countries in the region, Tajikistan as well. Yes. And now, to return to Dan Rosenblum, he, he is at the eye of the storm. He's deputy <laughs> assistant secretary for <coughs> Central Asia and, and the rest of Eurasia, practically, and served significantly for, what, eight years as coordinator of assistance, which means that he probably knows more about American projects in that part of the world than anyone else. Sir. Thank you very much, Fred. Uh, and it's also my honor to be here as part of this panel today. 
Um, I, since this is opening day baseball, at least here in Washington, I, it, it, it makes me think of, I feel a little bit like a, 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 a rookie infielder is going to spring training for the first time, surrounded by these uh, incredibly experienced and wise uh, um, colleagues. So um, anyway, I, um, I hope I can contribute a little bit to the discussion. What I thought I would do very briefly, because I know this is a question that I'll get anyway, and so I'll just answer the question before I get it, uh, is to ex uh, answer the question, what is the administration policy on Central Asia? Um, and, uh, and I guess the, 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 the straightforward answer is that at the moment, there is no new policy. This has not um, been one of the first things to be reviewed as we're reviewing foreign policy in the current administration. Um, and so at the moment, our uh, instruction and our guidance is to continue the things that we were already doing. So I'll tell you a little bit about what those are, but I will also tell you that I, I suspect that there will be uh, a certain amount of continuity, maybe a lot of continuity, in what we've been doing for the past 25 years. And just to remind everyone what that is in very simple, simple terms, the U.S. has, has since independence of the Central Asian states, um, essentially had two primary interests in the region that we have carried through in our policy. One is in supporting their independence and sovereignty and territorial integrity. Um, and second is to ensure that there is stability in the region so that it does not become um, full of fragile states that could become havens for, for terrorist activity. Um, now, we've had three supporting pillars to those two interests over the years, which have been in the security realm to help these countries be better able to provide for their own security, protect their borders, and so on. In the economic realm, to help them both reform economies internally to be more efficient, more effective, and also to connect more to their neighbors and to the rest of the world economically. And then the third pillar is governance, that is helping them to become more accountable, more effective government that serves the needs of their citizens. And of course, part of that is the res respecting human rights of, of their citizens. So those have been the, the three supporting pillars for these long-term US interests. I, I don't imagine that there will be any dramatic change in that general approach. Of course, what it comes down to, though, on a day-to-day -day basis is how are you balancing those interests and how are you balancing those different strategic efforts that you're making and what, where do you put the preponderance of, of the effort. And going to something that was mentioned both by Ambassador Herbst and Ambassador Hoagland, one of the things that we emphasized a lot in the past, which I expect will be important in, the, in this administration, is the issue of how the region acts as a region, uh, regional cooperation and uh, uh, dealing with the region's connections with its, its broader neighborhood. Um, Ambassador Hoagland mentioned the C5 plus one. The C5 plus one, um, as, he, as he pointed out, has had a couple of ministerial level meetings. There is another element to it that he didn't emphasize as much that I want to point to, which is we announced back last August that we have joint projects that we're doing together, the five countries of the region and the United States. And those, those projects funded by the US Congress, and that funding is already in place, are focused on trying to remove trade barriers internally and also improve the prospects for exporting Central Asia's products outside of the region. It's also focused on cooperation on counterterrorism and countering violent extremism. Uh, and it's, it's also focused on, on environmental issues in the region, which covers a lot of different possible areas and includes climate change, it includes 
It could include, it could in the future include water, uh, resource management, and so on. So those are the, the practical steps that we've begun to take under the C5 plus one that we hope to give it a little more, uh, more substance, that it won't just be uh, congenial meetings uh, at the high levels, but, but actually result in some improvement in people's lives in, in the region. Um, so let me, let me just conclude by referring to the title of the talk and the, the question that, uh, that Dr. Starr um, posed, is something stirring? To the extent that something is stirring other than the many pots of plof that are being stirred <laughs> in kitchens all over the region, um, I think it's probably this, this issue of the dynamic towards closer regional ties. I mean, there's no question that the steps the government of Uzbekistan has taken over the past five, five or six months have changed, I, I would argue, have changed the atmosphere and the dynamic in regional relations significantly. And uh, where that will go and how far it will go is a question that I'm sure we'll get into more in the discussion here. But I think it is, it's a significant sh shift. And it, from, from the standpoint of the United States, it's a very positive development. Thank you very much. Uh, Martha Alcott flew in from, from Michigan State to join oh, us today, yeah. and, but for many years ran the program at Carnegie Endowment here in town dealing with this region. Back after 9-11, she wrote a book on, uh, entitled Central Asia's Second Chance. And, and I suppose what we're talking about today is there a third chance that we're talking, <laughs> discussing. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. And I'm really honored to be up with my fellow senior officials. <laughs> um, I have just flown in from Michigan, uh, but two weeks ago I was in Kazakhstan. So there are good connections from Michigan. It's even better than from Washington. Um, I know I'm not being sarcastic. I'm being serious. Uh, but I'd like to follow up a few points that were made. I, I want to take issue and I, I want to begin and end with the fact that it's 25 years since independence. And I want to take issue with one of the things Ambassador Herp said. I don't view Uzbekistan as having a secular population. And I don't view most of the region anymore as having a secular population. I think Kazakhstan is pretty split. By saying a population is not secular, I'm not implying that they're Islamists. But I think that the population, and, and I'm not saying the elite isn't secular, but I think the population of these countries is really very different than it was 25 years ago. It's really time all of us who are gray, you know, heed the fact that there have been, that 25 years really makes a difference. And I'm going to start with that and end with that because I want to come back to what I think it means. I do think that the passing of President Islam Karimov is a signatory act. I think that he, both he and President Nazarbayev were without question the strongest personalities in the region. Um, and even though President Nazarbayev said, you know, that there was never any competition between these two men, I think that there, there was, whatever they thought of each other on a personal level may have been totally positive, but the, the notion of a, a, a pug, push and tug and pull about what the region was going to be like, and the two men had different visions. I think uh, I'm going to come back in another second and talk about the changes in Kazakhstan, because I do think what we see is legacy building and not so much, not so much institutional change or, or transition. I can talk about what I mean by that. But I think that everybody in, in all five countries in the region were willing, saw President Karimov's death as a chance 
to clear the decks and begin. In that sense, I would say something is stirring in the, the sense of more than just, you know, this is, maybe it is really Fred's third chance, I'm not sure. But, but everybody recognized, the leadership in all five countries recognized that this had to be an opportunity. This was a door opening, much more than 9-11, for them to redo regional relationships. Um, and I think that has been going, and we see this at the funeral of President Karimo, that President Rahmon came, the President of Turkmenistan came, the President of Afghanistan came, the President of Kyrgyzstan didn't come, Nazar President Nazarbayev was off internationally, and he made a big deal about coming very soon after and praying at President Karimov's gravesite. I mean, this was all, and, and the pictures were all over the place, you know, so in both countries it was well publicized. So I think that the leadership understood that they had to do something that if they were going to improve relations any time in the next decade or so, this was a moment that had to be grasped. And all of these leaders are, are really good politicians, too. I mean, they have a feel for moments, and they have a feel for their own countries. And I think they used it. And I think we've seen a continuation with the new president in Uzbekistan continuing with this. You know, he's made his first state visits to Turkmenistan and to Kazakhstan, and the Kazakh coverage has been very wide, very positive, very widespread. The Turkmen coverage, I mean, there's been coverage. I, I haven't studied it as carefully. The negotiations, the, the depth of negotiation between the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and between the, Ta the Uzbeks and the Kyrgyz, the seriousness with which border discussions have gone on and a series of other discussions speaks to a new seriousness. So I think it, it's really important. I mean, so I don't know what it's going to turn into, but I think it is really important. A few comments about Kazakhstan that I do think, I mean, I think that there have been important institutional changes made, but I do think this is legacy building rather than institution building. I think President Nazarbayev is thinking about the future of the country, both while he's alive and especially when he's not around. And so institutions are, I think, expected to transform themselves to some degree in the period now, but more importantly, he's laying down a legacy of what he'd like Kazakhstan to look like when he's not around. So I don't think he's trying to give up power in his lifetime at all. I think he's really talking about longer-term institution building. And we see other signs of, you know, and, and institutions are beginning to function differently, too. It's not just these constitutional changes. But I don't see privatization as as big a deal. I mean, I, I see this as really much more of caused by the oil prices. I see this as much more needing to raise money and expecting... It's not like there's going to, I mean, I've, actually, this is a question I spent some time on, and it's not like there's going to be a huge number of people leaping in to buy a lot of this stuff. A lot of it's going to have to be bought up by Kazakh money um, it, because it's, it, you know, it, we gave you, you have to give back when we have needs, and I, I think this is part of it. But again, like political institution building down the road, this really opens the economy in, in, over time. In terms of water, I really think, you have to learn to walk before you run. And because of that, I really think that the Central Asian countries are going to concentrate and have to improve trade relations before they can really deal with long-term settlement of water issues. Because on trade, there's much more agreement. Of the, and there's much less, I mean, there's tension because they haven't regularized trade across borders. But there are new international programs, and part of it's through this, the US support. I mean, that's part of the, the 
C5 plus 1 has to do with trade, but there I think that there's really strong interest on the part of the states themselves to see the trade relationships improve. And that takes me to Russia, the US, and China, and then my conclusion after that. Trade is one of the ways that you can reduce Russia's influence. If you can regularize trade across borders, then you're minimizing some of the potential downsides of the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, you know, you're opening up more trade within these five countries and across these five countries. And to the degree to which trade gets regularized and based on international standards, and common border conditions, it, it reduces, I mean, you may have tariff differences still, but it still eases up trade, save for the differences of tariff. So it makes trade much more manageable. So for me, I don't see them until they can improve, until they have some successes, I can't see water really becoming an issue that they're able to fully resolve. Um, Russia, I would argue that what we have is diminished. Russian capacity in the region, diminished US interest and potentially capacity, and a much greater Chinese role as everybody's talked about, but China doesn't want the same relationship with these states that say Russia wanted. I mean, the Chinese role, they will be a major economic partner. I think we shouldn't overestimate how important Central Asia is for China. China is playing an important role in Central Asian economy, but they are playing that same role in many other economies in the world. So their investment in Central Asia is not disproportionate mm -hmm. to their investment elsewhere. And, and then just like in conclusion, to talk about the 25 years. I think it's really important to remember how different these countries have become over the 25 years. And I just want to end on one point, which is to say that 25 years ago, the majority of people living in these countries today, the majority of people living in these countries hadn't spent even a day of their lives living in the USSR. They were born after the USSR. The leadership that is coming to power, I'm not talking about the very top, but the people that are now coming increasingly to power in the region as middle and, and higher level officials have never worked in the Soviet Union. And fine, I mean, they, they entered the job market after the Soviet Union's collapse. And finally, even the majority of the ruling elite, the very top, have spent more of their lives working, quote unquote, outside of the Soviet Union than inside of the Soviet Union. That the bulk of their careers have been spent in independent countries and running independent countries. And so I think it's something stirring. It's that in the region itself, a leadership that has for quite some time felt confident to manage their country's affairs, now feel increasingly confident to move on and begin engaging on regional affairs with minimal engagement of outside powers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I think these are very stirring presentations. But <laughs> however, however, I think we've all noticed that to varying degrees, their emphasis has been on the centripetal forces that are at work. Mm -hmm. And even though I might align myself with those who have made that emphasis, I think we have to ask, what about, have we understated the centrifugal forces in the region? And I invite you to comment on that in any way you feel appropriate. John, yeah. Well, certainly if you're talking about centrifugal forces, you have to worry about the Regarding centrifugal forces, I think you have to worry about stability in both Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Uh, 
um, relating to the ability of the governments in both countries to exert power throughout their territories. Related to that, of course, is the problem of Islamic extremism um, coming out of um, certain areas in Pakistan and still in, in Afghanistan. And with a waxing um, Taliban, this, this problem is not going away. Uh, I do not think that serious um, instability is a threat in the other three Central Asian states. Not to say there aren't elements of, of that, but I think they, you have state apparatuses which, which essentially function to provide basic security. Uh, but again, I, I come back to the centripetal forces. If, in fact, we're going to see a greater movement to economic integration, that will be a stabilizing factor, include dealing with these centrifugal problems. Any others on centrifugal forces? You know, the, the one thing that keeps coming to, to mind when we talk about this kind of thing is at independence, it was Uzbekistan, it was President Karimov who asserted that Uzbekistan is the natural leader of the region, uh, natural leader of the greater Turkic nation, he even said at some points, which would mean stretching from western China over into the Caucasus in some instances. Um, it was the, Uzbekistan was the center of Soviet Central Asia. Tashkent was the capital of Soviet Central Asia. And czarist. And czarist. Mm -hmm. And many of the dissidents during the, the, the Stalinist times who were not immediately executed were exiled to Tashkent. So there was a, this great uh, international Western Russian culture that, that grew up there. It's a populous state. It had lots of industry at that time. Kazakhstan didn't have much at independence. Very small population, huge territory, but what they had was a visionary leader who emphasized economics and education. Didn't get caught up in the back and forth with, with Karimov, just simply said, we're going to go in this direction. And over a period of 25 years, that really paid off. So that the other key state right now, Uzbekistan, even though it's a strong state, is going to have to do a lot of catching up to make it to the level of global integration that Kazakhstan has done. And then those two, should they begin working together better, and I really do think they will, will have to find ways to work better with the other three states in the region, which are also very, very different from each other and aren't at all ready to play that kind of role yet. Dan, you use the phrase cooperation and coordination, which nice words. Um, do you remember the German-American political scientist Karl Deutsch, who, who was asked, I think under some research contract probably, to, to identify the basis for political community in the North Atlantic area back in the 60s. And he came up with a very interesting approach. He, he counted the number of telephone calls, telegrams, and first-class mail going a, across there. He came to the conclusion that it had reached such a level that so, some kind of political com community was possible. Now, if you do the same in Central Asia, I would submit you, you come out Just short. Nothing. And how do you deal with that, yeah. in, uh, you optimists who are talking about 
So, well, I'll just uh, well, you've been, if I go. He has no, to be honest. Okay, he does okay, policy. I thought you were ready to say something. <laughs> I was on yeah. So, well, I think, um, you know, I was thinking uh, as I was listening to, uh, to Dick talk that I'm sort of, uh, as a professional diplomat now, as a current professional diplomat, I'm paid to be a, a realistic optimist. Right. <laughs> and so that's, the, that's what I will be. I will be a realistic optimist here. And I'll, but I'll base it on, on some conversations I had during a recent trip to Tashkent when I was there in, uh, in February. <coughs> actually, two very interesting back-to-back -back meetings. Uh, first, our ambassador there hosted a lunch for me with the four ambassadors from the other countries of Central Asia based in Tashkent. Oh, that's good. To talk about their, their assessment of the current relationship with Uzbekistan. And immediately following that, I had a long session with Ambassador Namatov, who is now the uh, envoy for border, border negotiations with neighbors. Uh, and what I came away from those two discussions with was that there's a very clear-eyed sense on, on the part of the Uzbeks, but on the part of the rest of the region, of how difficult it is to deal with these border issues, particularly in the Fergana Valley and those, those very complicated enclaves and exclaves and everything. But that at the same time, they were actually making real practical progress, dealing first with the easy ones, the easier ones, and resolving those, and kind of identifying which were the three or four most difficult things to solve and coming up with solutions to them. And Ambassador Namatov said the one thing that he was putting forward in the negotiations, which he, and he thought was you know, being reciprocated, was a sense that no one will get everything they want from this. And that seems so simple to us, and yet it's, it's, it's fundamental, obviously, mm -hmm. to, to resolving any of these issues. You, you mean always... compromise? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, <laughs> yes, compromise. So anyway, so that was, that, that, I left that, those discussions feeling realistically optimistic. Yeah, but at, at the same time, how, how much communication is there? How much, I mean, you can barely travel, get direct flights from capital to capital. How many phone calls, how many? Uh, seems to me their mutual isolation <laughs> has gone pretty far. Yeah, but I, they don't have to be a coherent region. They don't have to function like they functioned in the Soviet Union. They have to regulate borders. There has to be agreed on borders, border security. They have to do something about trade, the irrationality of some of the current trade regimes. And they have to deal with shared water issues. Beyond that, they're becoming different countries. They think of not, I mean, they are different countries. They have a different worldview one from the other. They don't have a desire to inhabit coherently overlapping space. I mean, I think So what you're talking about really comes from the top down, not from the bottom up. Well, the bottom up in border areas is one thing, the, but the bottom up for the rest of the country. I mean, I think in Atarao, they don't have any interest of what's going on in Surkhandarya. You know, it's like, but yes, Along in Shimkent, there's interest in what's going on in Tashkent Oblast. I mean, so it's like, but the identity of Kazakhstan is becoming increasingly different from the identity of Uzbekistan. Ambassador Herbst, were you about to? Well, you know what? I, I think maybe people in Enid, Oklahoma, don't have an intense interest in what's going on in, let's say, Manchester, New Hampshire, either. Um, I'm not saying that to dump on what you said. But that's one but country. Very different regions. Though. No, but that's yeah. one country. No, okay, let's, let's skip beyond that. I was then. going to different borders. I mean, I was crossing borders. 
you emphasize very rightly, Martha, that these are have become increasingly different countries. They're not, God forbid, the stance. Uh, they're not Soviet Central Asia. They are five separate individual countries. And sometimes when people talk about the pop, is there a possibility they could ever form their own regional association? They'll say, oh, but the countries are too different. different. I don't think that's true. That's a different question. I don't think that's true because if you look at ASEAN as a model, when it first began to come together, people said it won't, it can't happen because they're much, much too different. It takes time. We've got to be patient. We can't write a policy and get very, very, very impatient if it's not implemented within two, three years. Uh, this is a historic evolution that's happening right now, and I think it's underway. Is this a policy, Dan? Uh, well, or, or is it something? No, I, I didn't mean it's yeah. our policy. No, I mean, no, but yeah, yeah. No, you, actually, you can't make things happen. It's, they yeah, have to it's happen not, naturally. It isn't. Uh, yeah, I, I think Ambassador Hoagland said it well. <laughs> it's not. It's not. The policy is to find whatever ways we can to cooperate with all the countries of the region together on things that will benefit them in the long run. And that's you know. So the C5 plus one emphasized things like removing trade barriers. So that's that's the policy. It's for the countries of the region to determine what they want to do with that. And I'll just cite one little indicator that we found to be you know, um, a very, uh, another promising indicator along the way. Um, when we gathered in New York at the time of the UN General Assembly in September, uh, there was no C5 plus one meeting last fall. Um, and there were just too many other things going on for all the countries. Nonetheless, the five Central Asian countries saw fit to have their own C5 without minuses or pluses mm -hmm. or any other mm -hmm. added on discussion and issued a press release afterwards. And, and, and I'll be, to be frank, um, and Ambassador Taktagulov knows this, that several of the ministers there almost, I would say, apologetically said to us, we're sorry we didn't invite you. <laughs> and we said, no, we're glad that you didn't invite us because this is exactly, this is what, you know, you should be doing and mm -hmm. without any other country there. There's no need for the United States to be part of those. Were they to take some initiative? I'm sorry, John, you're Ambassador Hurts. I'm going to do something dangerous and offer a view of U.S. policy. I, Dan, I, I actually think that our policy has been since independence of the stands to promote regional cooperation as a way to strengthen them politically and economically in part with a view towards an overbearing northern neighbor, and in part just without reference to that. And, uh, well. Yeah, I mean, actually, you just said it much more succinctly and articulately than I did. That's, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> but Thank I think you, the important thing is that we, nor anyone else, cannot make it happen. It, it has to be organic, it has to come internally, and it has to come when each of the leaders, each of the nations is ready for it. It doesn't have to imply that the countries see themselves in each other's mirrors as having much more in common than a shared set of problems. Um, and that's kind of what I meant by my example. When, when I've taught groups that have gathered summer school students from the five countries in, in Kazakhstan, these students had very little in common. In fact, the Uzbeks 
communicated with everybody else in English rather than Russian because the students didn't have enough Russian to do it. You know, they, and a lot of the other students didn't have enough English to communicate with them in English. But you don't have to have strong cultural similarities to have a regional organization be formed and have it work. Totally agree. So I think our markers for cooperation shouldn't be that these countries see each other in each other's images no. and they see much in common, no. save a legacy of shared problems that have to be addressed and enough respect for each other that they're willing to give some as well as to get some. Excellent. The floor is open. <laughs> uh, and, and we'll ask each of you to uh, state your question very directly, and to, but to introduce yourself. Sir? Thank you. It's uh, Dana Marshall with Transnational Strategy Group. And Fred, it's such a pleasure to see friends from 20, 25 years ago. This is a tremendous wave of nostalgia seeing all of you here. Thank you very much for that discussion. <laughs> Next time on Walk. Um, Good I don't know <laughs> whether I was stirred or shaken, but uh, certainly uh, well informed. But there was one issue that I do think is important uh, relating to the economic situation across these countries, especially some of the uh, more economically prominent countries, and that's the holy grail of economic diversification. Uh, a goal that the United States, of course, has tried from day one uh, to assist countries with, I think, colleagues with whom I served in government will remember way back, even in the Bush 41 period, there, was, there were attempts to assist Kazakhstan in particular with economic uh, diversification um, so that uh, so much of the countries would not be linked to the oil price, the gold price, the cotton price, some of these things. I wonder if uh, the panel could discuss a little bit uh, whether there, there may be some diversification goals that could be served through co cooperation in the region, and perhaps should the American administration position move in this direction, is there something that perhaps uh, President Trump administration might do differently in that area? Thank you. I don't think, Dan, you're about to answer this question. I mean, I can offer some comments unless others want to Go ahead, say, start. yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're all looking to me to start. Um, so I'll, I'll just say that one um, area that uh, goes to the diversif economic diversification where the U.S. over the years has devoted a lot of our assistance resources is in agriculture and especially horticulture. And I know that, again, my recent trip I guess you always think about the thing that just yeah. happened most recently, my recent trip to Uzbekistan. Spent a lot of time talking about President Mirzayoyev's plans in agriculture and our, our programs there. And one of the things I learned which surprised me is that already the value of Uzbekistan's horticulture exports has overtaken the value of its cotton exports, uh -huh. which is you know pretty extraordinary and points to the direction that yeah. they're headed in. But it's not just about Uzbekistan because Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, um, maybe not so much Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, but th those two also have great potential in terms of you know, horticulture and high-value-added high crops for export. Um, so that's, that's one, one part of the, the picture, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. Yes, over here. Ariel Cohen, the Atlantic Council. Uh, just to elaborate on the previous question, um, 
uh, about diversification. Um, I'm doing some work looking at Russia, trying to figure out what are the industries that would be the potential foci, potential centers of economic growth. I do not find many, especially with the oil and gas uh, being stuck. But if a sector or several sectors would be pulling economy up, there are other factors pulling economy down. And in the case of Russia, it's corruption. I just did a report for a client on corruption in a certain uh, industry. How, so the first part of the question is, what would be the drivers of economic growth in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and others? Uh, beyond obvious, beyond the raw materials. But beyond that, how realistically in authoritarian countries can you build a real working program to fight corruption? Okay. Yes. Okay. I don't, I'm not going to take on the fighting corruption part. Um, I'd like to take on the diversification part because I think you can achieve greater diversification even in spite of if you can reduce the level of corruption to some degree, you can still, I think, achieve especially agriculturally based diversification. But the catch for me is what your attention is going to be, what, what sectors of the economy are you going to put your attention on in agriculture, and are you going to look for a sustainability of a rural population versus increased diversification of exports, and they may work one against the other. And I would argue, to go back to the terrorist risks, <laughs> that, that we have to be, where our attention should be, is on economic diversification that creates sustainable, sustainable economic activities in the countryside. We have to sop up as many people. We have to find diversification that creates livelihoods for as many people as possible. And to me, that's much more important than industrial agricultural development, which is one of the ways the Kazakhs are moving, which creates you know, the GDP percentage from agriculture and agricultural exports will rise, but not necessarily the employment figures. Now, Kazakhstan's not Uzbekistan, but, but if resources are finite, then the decisions you make about how you're going to divide them in, in trying to create diversification becomes re really critical. And I would push for an employment generated understanding of diversification over, over the total export value of what you're diversifying. I'd add something about corruption, if I might, just for a second. Uh, when I was serving in foreign capitals and had to deliver talking points on corruption, I always felt a little bit uncomfortable with that. And I would always qualify to say that in the United States, we have corruption too. Uh, I can tell you uh, from personal experience. I have a brother in another part of the country who gets contracts with the city where he works. And to get those contracts, he is expected to give certain gifts. It's not huge checks, but certain gifts. Uh, it's a requirement. Now, the question is, what is the tolerable level of corruption in a country? Ours is pretty low. And we quite regularly send our mayors and governors and members of Congress to prison for corruption. Can you have anti-corruption in an authoritarian country? Well, absolutely. Look what's going on in China right now. 
um, a horribly corrupt country, but at the same time, they're beginning to say, we've got to lower the level of tolerance for that. And they're going after some pretty big fish. And that's the way you do level the, uh, the, that level. That's the way you lower that level of tolerance. Is that a comment that you're offering? If, if you're going to go after, sorry, I'm Derek Hansen with the uh, Center for National Private Enterprise. If you're going to go after corruption in authoritarian states, what you're going to do is have authoritarian leaders kneecap their opponents. It's going to happen very quickly. Uh, and I, I don't know how you, can, how you can separate without having some sort of democratic civil society involved in the process of, of developing anti-corruption legislation uh, I, I, don't, I don't see how you can't, you, you'll have an authoritarian leader enforce anti-corruption measures. Yes, sir, right here in the front. Whoop, no. <laughs> and you've regretted it ever since, right? <laughs> the rest is history. Uh, but I want to just go in a somewhat different direction. Talk a little bit more, if you would talk a little bit more about the relationship between Russia and China and how that relationship will, uh, uh, what effect that relationship will have in the region. And do they, almost, do they serve almost as a mutual deterrent to each other from getting too far, uh, too far involved, or do you expect more Russian influence? And what should be the Chinese reaction? Could you and back hear that? Uh, oh, maybe the question is: Can will yeah, Russia and China provide some kind of mutual deterrence with respect to their dealings in Central Asia? Uh, I, can you hear me? No, it's not no, functioning. The here we go. Hello? Okay. China and Russia right now are uncomfortable allies regarding yeah. Central Asia. Their interests are, are driven principally by their problems with the world's superpower, the United States. Uh, we've, we've, we've watched the Russian-U.S. relationship over the past several years move in a very difficult direction. We're seeing now with the new administration uh, similar problems between, well, not similar, but problems of a certain degree between China and the United States. In Central Asia, Russia remains the most influential nation, but it is being challenged in a very serious way by China. Now, if you, if you study Chinese history, you know they, just like Russian history, Russia moves either east or it moves west. It rarely moves in both directions at the same time. The same is true of China. Right now, their focus is principally on the seas to their east, not the lands to their west. Uh, when they expanded into Central Asia in the 15th and 16th centuries, they, stay, they got rid of their fleet to travel to East Africa. So right now their focus is eastwards, not westward. And the Russian focus is also westward. So they're not clashing as they might in the future, because Russia has to be very concerned about China's growing economic strength in the region. It's also true. It's also true. This has not come up yet 
on this panel. I think that um, President Putin sent a nasty little love note to Astana at Lake Seliger in August of, of 2014 That's right. when he said that, well, you know, Kazakhstan is an artificial country created by the, my genius friend Nazarbayev, and right now they treat Russians nicely, but who knows what will happen after my genius friend is gone. I don't think the United States is of an inclination to propose um, a response to any Russian serious games with the territorial integrity of Kazakhstan. I think China is. I think Beijing would send a very sharp note to Moscow if they saw any step in that direction. Yes, sir, right here. Thank you very much. I'm a member for UNESCO Task Force. My question is the following. Regarding regional in cooperation, uh, last October, Uzbekistan uh, launched a center, al, uh, sorry, Imam al-Bukhari Center in Samarkand. And he invited not only the neighbors, but also Islamic Development Bank, uh, uh, organization of Islamic countries. Do you see, given your excellent, brilliant documentation of this area, I still recall your book, The Lost Renaissance, and the, uh, only 10% or so of this, the culture of this area is properly documented. There's a lot to be done. Do you think culture could play a role in closer regional cooperation and even creating a sort of international center of competence, what they are looking for in this what cultural field? Thank you. I will respond to that if you don't mind. Um, it's very interesting that culture, they're able to speak about common activity, uh, commonalities on the cu cultural and historical level that they're not prepared to speak about in terms of current politics. Therefore, President Karimov, two, two three years ago, held a very large conference in Samarkand in which it was devoted to basically the material that I covered in my book, Lost Enlightenment. But it was interesting because this was President Karimov. At, in his speech, which is subsequently published, he referred to, for example, you know, uh, Ibn Sina and said, and I want to talk about our Ibn Sina. And then he stopped and said, wait, I don't mean our Ibn Sina, I mean our Ibn Sina. And then he, he did this repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Now, you go to Turkmenistan, in the, in the capital, Ashgabat, cent, a central square, the president tore down all the Soviet buildings that were there, dug it out, filled it with top quality soil, then built a, a, it combined two blocks and built a marble uh, channel, water channel down the middle, planted beautiful 40-foot trees on both sides, and between the channel and the trees, a beautiful walk, and along the walk on both sides, he put statues of all these great figures from Central Asia's past. And, and when he was asked, well, you know, these, most of these are not Turkmen. 
<laughs> it's, a, it's a rather rude question to have asked, and uh, yours truly did it. Um, but he, ga he gave a wonderful answer. He, sa he said, that's true, but they are our common heritage. Mm -hmm. now, now, that's going on. The same song is being sung yeah. by Ghani in, in, in Kabul. Uh, Nazarbayev is saying the same thing. Uh, and, and so they're, they're, they're not uncomfortable talking about commonalities in, in the deep past. And maybe what's happening is that is now sifting slowly up toward the present. Uh, Dick? I would add just to uh, another tiny fact to pay attention to on the economic side. The, the key development banks in Central Asia, I think, uh, can rightly be described as Asian. Uh, first, and of long standing, the Asian Development Bank, and much more recently, the um, AIIB, um, Asian Infrastructure, Infrastructure Investment Bank, mm -hmm. set up by China, which is already starting projects in funding projects in Central Asia. If we're thinking about Russia and China, I'm not aware that Russia has a development bank like yes. that. But what it has well, in some... There's something called the Eurasian Development yeah, Bank, which is Russian-like. Nothing on the same scale at all. And, and what Russia is doing right now with the Eurasian Economic Union is rent-seeking. Mm -hmm. Because even though there was great hope by Nazarbayev at the beginning of the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, none of the countries other than Russia who are members of it have pr profited in any way yet and are unlikely to. Yes, please. Hi, uh, my name is Efkan Niftiev. I'm with the Caspi Policy Center. Uh, I think this is a great panel. And uh, just today, Nazarbayev is in Baku in Azerbaijan. Yes. My question is like, uh, we are discussing is something stirring in Central Asia? Does that mean anything to the west of Caspian, I mean, for the Caucasus? Ah, mm -hmm. very interesting. Yes, could I say something on that? Um, <laughs> I have always thought that there's, uh, we at least in our capital city, in our bureaucratic divisions within our departments, have made a mistake in not looking at Azerbaijan as a part of this greater whole. Um, I, I really think it is. Georgia, Armenia have a, a different culture and might naturally go in a different direction. But absolutely, Central Asia has to include the Caspian and what's on the shores of the Caspian. And yes, yeah. please. Uh, I, I, I was really curious about this question. In Michigan, we have an exchange program with Azerbaijan. So I went and took a group of students for part of last summer. And I think, yes, Azerbaijan belongs for part of it in discussion in Central Asia, but it also is different from Central Asia, too. I mean, that. But you're saying everyone is different. No, I think it's different. <laughs> I say everyone is different within the region, but that, I mean, it's almost like Afghanistan. Not that I'm not comparing Afghanistan and Azerbaijan, but I'm saying for some questions, Afghanistan very much belongs with the five Central Asian quest countries, but. Some of their problems are really very different from Central Asia's. In Azerbaijan's case, for some discussions, it really makes sense to include them. And increasingly, the Kazakhs and Azerbaijanis are co-op. I mean, there's much closer cross-Caspian ties developing between those two than have been the case until this past year or two. But for other 
in other ways, Azerbaijan is as distinct from Central Asia is, as the five Central Asian countries that we're talking about as Afghanistan is. So yes, for some questions, it belongs. I don't think it does across the board. But we can argue over that afterwards. <laughs> my, my friend Ed Lutwak has proposed a bridge. He's actually done the com engineering for, for a bridge. Aktau to Baku? Turkmenistan? Yes. Turkmenistan yes. To Turkmenistan. No, no, Aktau to oh. Baku. Oh. That's a long bridge. <laughs> long bridge. It, how, however much long. or not Azerbaijan is culturally close to other Central Asian states, if there is serious economic cooperation in Central Asia, the prosperity that flows from that will naturally head to the Caucasus. Further, if there's serious cooperation in Central Asia, it's possible that Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan will come to an understanding with Azerbaijan on that favorite nerd issue, demarcation of the Caspian. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, I'm Nancy Lubin, and there are really a lot of old people here. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> but, I mean, it's great to see you all, too. And back in the 70s, Martha and I were schlepping through Uzbekistan and Central Asia, and Fred got there even before we did. So it's... He's old it's <laughs> so please great. get to your question. <laughs> I had done all my work in the 70s on, I have to go back to Ariel's question on the C word, and I had done so much of my work on corruption and was harassing Dick Morningstar and everybody else in the early 90s, you know, how are we gonna, how are we gonna uh, incorporate this into what we do? And I asked that because having just been again in Uzbekistan just a month or two ago, I was surprised how much more, even than me, people were talking about corruption and Gafur is back in Alimov and all these organized criminals are back in town. And, you know, corruption seemed to be a big issue everywhere. So I was just curious as we're talking about all these different projects and regional cooperation and everything else, um, how much does, does corruption, um, is corruption, does for corruption feed into that? Do we look at it? as sort of like your, your brother, you know, and, and the way things are organized, and it'll fade away as these other projects get up and going? Or mm -hmm. are we actually trying to incorporate some kind of corruption something into all of these programs? And if so, what are we doing? I mean, the thing about corruption is, it, they know there's corruption. <laughs> there's nothing, we, we can't sensitize them to the dysfunctional aspects of corruption. They're aware of it. But I don't know what our role is. I think in the end it has to be their doing. And you see in Kazakhstan there is you know, more effort to curb corruption. Whether it will become, reach a threshold point is another question. You know, but, but it has to be done internally. And then the question is do corrupt people come back? Because if they don't get a piece, <laughs> then you can't have economic change. I mean. It, it, it's really, yeah, in the end, I think the, the level of tolerance in society is really critical as to, certainly in a place like Kazakhstan, you know, when corruption is getting bad, when your normal friends are complaining that it's gotten worse, you know, it's like, so there is a societal norm, too, that has to be fed in. I'm not saying that society wants to be corrupt, but, but in the end, they set levels of tolerance, too, but... Ambassador Earth. 
But cor corruption is a, an extremely difficult problem, and it's not going away in Central Asia in any of our lifetimes, even the younger members of this audience. But um, there is a history of countries developing well, even in corrupt circumstances. Uh, there are things that can be done partly from the outside, although overwhelmingly internally. Look, one key, not the only key, but one key to economic development is foreign direct investment. Corruption is a major impediment to that, but you can establish, countries which are highly corrupt can establish certain frameworks in which there are limits to that corruption to attract foreign direct investment. And if the Central Asian countries, especially the two largest, are able to manage that, uh, well, if they're able to manage that, that would greatly increase um, economic growth in the region and have a downward, I mean, a positive impact on future developments, reducing corruption. You know, I, uh, yes. I add just one more thing, and I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely. Uh, I've begun to wonder recently when countries like Canada, maybe the Scandinavian countries, will perceive a need to build new relations with our civil society to begin to fight neo-corruption sure. in the United States. Uh, I, I want to ask, uh, turn to someone, anyone in the back. Yes, sir. And then up here, and that will be it. Chris Estrade with the State Department. Thank you very much for a fascinating view and glimpse into the stirring part of Central Asia. Uh, my question regard <coughs> is regarding the ethnic tensions in the region uh, between the Kyrgyz and the Uzbeks, where riots recently erupted, uh, Karapalkak, uh, Tajik, and Uzbeks in Uzbekistan, Russian, and Kazakhs in Kazakhstan. What role does the, these tensions play in the integration of the region? And then also, how does the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and its uh, focus on the Uyghur issue affect the integration of that region as well? Comment? Uh, I'll say something which might be controversial to some. I think that by and large the ethnic tensions in the region, which are real, have not been exploited in a serious way by any of the leaders. Um, there have been, they've been played a little bit, but not in a serious way. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned in this discussion of Central Asia is that despite all the problems, there's never been a, a real war in the region except the Tajik Civil War, which again is, is an indication of the limits to instability in Central Asia. Uh, I think that the changes we've seen in Oops, Uzbekistan sorry. are probably positive for ethnic relations, although I don't think Karimov was bad on the subject. The problems you have in Kyrgyzstan in my judgment, are problems from the absence of state, effective state control in the Uzbek areas. I don't think these are being stoked by central authorities, and they re reflect tensions on the ground between a more mercantile, citified Uzbek population mm -hmm. and a more um, rural Kyrgyz. Thank you. Right here, last question. Uh, here's a mic. Uh, Robert Schroeder with International Investor. We heard Afghanistan barely mentioned. Uh, there's also uh, a couple of other bordering states, Iran and Pakistan. My question Pakistan would be, do any of the nations that we're speaking of today regard U.S. policy as an obstacle to better relations with any of those nations? No. Can, can I take a brief stab? I mean, I, I, about Iran. Pakistan doesn't share a border with these countries, but Iran does share a border. 
Um, and the central agents have gone about their business with Iran just as they wished for all these years. Um, Iran has good relations with most of the states, better with some than with others. The trade relations are strong. I mean, pa the Pakistani relationship is also set in the region and has nothing to do with us. Whether it's strong or weak is much more the driver of from the Pakistanis, I think. But the Iranians in particular, they, they have not they've not felt at all hampered by our trade restrictions with Iran. They've opened new railroad. Well, they couldn't get international funding, so they found, they put their own funding. It slowed transport across Iran, but the states have never been willing to knuckle under to what the U.S. wanted. There, there are all kinds of factors here. First for Iran, um, Iran is um, a, a Shia state. Uh, it's a religious state, and the secular leaders of the country, not the people, but the secular leaders, have been very, very, very cautious uh, about Iran and how much relation they're actually going to build politically. I don't mean economically. Um, and then the other country that we haven't at all mentioned yet that eventually I think will play a role India. is India. India. Now, right now, India and Pakistan both have embassies in each capital, but not so much for developing relations with those countries as for keeping an eye on each other to make sure they're not getting ahead of one or the other in, in the capitals. But India, uh, with long term, is going to be a big player there. A new balance. Any final quick, yeah. very yeah. quick yeah. comments? I just want to quickly add on, because you mentioned Afghanistan as well, which of course does share a border with three of the Central Asian countries. And I would just say that, that what happens in Afghanistan is something that Central oh, Asian boy. states care deeply yeah. about Doesn't and are stay very engaged on. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, right. uh, and so, and this is something that we are, because of the role that the United States plays in Afghanistan and continues to play on the security side, this is a, a major part of our dialogue mm -hmm. with, with Central Asia. Um, I wish we had more time. This has been a very uh, interesting, stirring, yes, discussion. <laughs> Uh, let me let me offer just a couple of very quick comments. First, I would say personally, I think we've understated the what's going on. Uh, the the fact that the that the new head of Uzbekistan, as a campaign promise, I mean, you can say, well, that wasn't much of a uh, of a campaign, but it was announced before the election, namely elective governors. This is an absolutely stunning move, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not happened yet, and it won't happen easily, but, but uh, th the very fact that any country in the region is, is considering that proposal seriously, I think, is of, of importance. The second thing I would note is that they have experience in this. This is not the first time. There was the Central Asia Union, and it's a... It's a Amazing to me that not, with all the scholars and people in think tanks, not one of them has written a, a, a good book or article on the Central Asia Union of the, that existed in the late 90s and which was so successful that Mr. Putin requested observer status and when he got observer status he then demanded to be a member and then having joined as a member a couple of years later he disbanded it. 
now, now that, I mean, one of you please sit down and write that story. <laughs> we have masses of material. Uh, in other words, they know where they're coming from on this. Uh, further point, uh, I think that uh, uh, have to have to note here is is, is the position of Pre President Nazarbayev on this. Uh, he, uh, in an interesting gathering in December, uh, several of their senior officials were speaking using this Russian term, uh, "Greater Eurasia," which is in, and, and <laughs> President Nazarbayev asked, "Where is? Show me this on a map." And, and proceeded to say, wait a minute, there is Central Asia. And, he's, and here's the point, and he made this on the record, it, that, namely that, that we have common interests. He, he, that was what he began. We have common interests. We have common histories. We have a, a, a common heritage, and, and we, our differences, he said, actually enhance this language, ethnicity, and so on. He said, those have always existed. And our relationships, which have been built on a common economic ties, have endured through the centuries. A very interesting, important statement from, from the president of Kazakhstan, very much paralleling what we're hearing elsewhere. Now, the, the, the question of, of, of the Caucasus has come up and of Afghanistan. Just a quick word on that. Uh, on Afghanistan, it, it, uh, it, President Nazarbayev made a point of including Afghanistan in his list. Mm -hmm. And I think the U.S. should do, propose to do so as well with its C5 plus one. Uh, and he, he, he had good reason for doing so, and you uh, all have, have identified these reasons. Um, it, it, how can you talk about water when, uh, when uh, the, the major riparian state on the Amodarya isn't, isn't in the room? That won't work. Um, finally, on the question of, of contacts today, is this happening from above or from below or both? Uh, there's a, more of a case that it's happening um, from below than we may have appreciated here. We, we, at the Central Asia Caucasus Institute, which is now up on the hill at the American Foreign Policy Council, we have the Rumsfeld program, which is funded by the Rumsfeld Foundation. And it brings together young leaders, from people in their late 20s, early 30s, from all over the region. And it's been doing so for nine years, and the new group comes tomorrow. But they gather in the summer for a conference every year, this in Tajikistan this year. Very interesting. They are doing business deals with each other. They are, they are, they are investing together. They are doing mm -hmm. projects mm -hmm. together. This is just happening. They're picking up the phone. These are young men and women in their, in their late 20s and 30s who, who, who are way ahead of the governments, it seems to me. So, so uh, that's worth noting. Final note here has to do with the, uh, something they recognize as a common interest, but we don't when we talk about them. And that is that they have secular states, largely Muslim population, but secular states, secular systems of law, and secular courts. That's hugely important. They consider it important. Why don't we 
This should be one of the cornerstones of our policy. Here is a model for all their imperfections and flaws. Here is a potentially a model uh, that could be applied elsewhere in the world. We should be working with them to perfect this model and improve it, but we should keep in mind that this has relevance wherever there are Muslim societies. Anyway, I, I wonder if... Uh, uh, we shouldn't conclude that there are real stirrings and that they have a direction. We don't know how far it will go. We don't know whether it'll be nipped in the bud. Uh, we don't know if it'll happen from above or below, but some kind of, to use Dan's term again, coordination and cooperation in a level that we've not seen up to now seems to be on the horizon. Now, I didn't come back to the Caspian issue and and the Caucasus, but I'm doing so now, and that is that we're pleased to serve uh, uh, Georgian wine <laughs> and, and, and Georgian goodies, uh, thanks to our senior fellow, uh, Mamuka Saratelli. Thank you very much. One, one more word. If you enjoyed today's presentation, please note this is just the first of many that this Eurasia Center is going to be doing with the Central Asia and Caucasus Institute. You'll be getting notices from us in about in a few weeks about the next event. Thank you.